this is one of those times where it really matters that this isn't an expensive thing because people are calling these methods all the time, aren't they? They use that client everywhere. It's almost in every code path. You definitely don't want to consider if you use that or not. You just want to use it and it doesn't have a significant penalty. Similar to when I realize in a Go binary, profiling is kind of always on and you just have this endpoint if you just anonymously import this package and stuff like that. It was like, weird, isn't that expensive? Should I switch that off in my real production binary? But no, it's all designed to be, I don't know, a fraction of a percent of your total resource usage. So you just leave it on, you don't ask questions. And when you actually get in trouble, it's there. And it doesn't matter if it's developer trouble or ops trouble, it's just there. And that's so cool and so good to have. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Square. Millions of Square sellers use the Square app marketplace to discover and install apps they rely on daily to run their businesses. And the way you get your app there is by becoming a Square app partner. Let me tell you how this works. As a Square app partner, you can offer and monetize your apps directly to Square sellers in the app marketplace to millions of sellers. You can leverage the Square platform to build robust e-commerce websites, smart payment integrations, and custom solutions for millions of businesses. And here's the best part. You get to keep 100% of revenue while you grow. Square collects a 0% cut from your sales for the first year or your first 100 Square referred sellers. That way you can focus on building and growing your Square customer base and you get to set your own pricing models. You also get a ton of support from Square. You get access to Square's technical team using Slack. You get insights into the performance of your app on the app marketplace. And of course, you get direct access to new product launches. And all this begins at changelog.com square. Again, changelog.com square. Welcome to Go Time, your source for diverse discussions from around the Go community. We record live on Tuesdays at 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time. Subscribe at youtube.com slash changelog so you don't miss it. And don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at GoTimeFM. Special thanks to our partners at Fastly for shipping our shows super fast to wherever you listen. Check them out at Fastly.com. Okay, here we go. Hello and welcome to Go Time. I'm Matt Raya and today we're talking about instrumentation and instrumenting your Go code specifically. I'm joined today by Johnny Borsico. Hello, Johnny. Hello there. How's it going? It's been a while. Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah, we haven't been uh, on a show together for a minute. Yeah. How are you, mate? Yeah, not for a while. Well, you don't just have to tolerate me on your own, Johnny. Don't worry. <laughs> we have some guests today to dig into this subject. We've got Bjorn Robinstein. He's here. He's an engineer at Grafana Labs and longtime Prometheus contributor. Hello, Bjorn. Welcome to Go Time. Hello. I'm glad that I'm finally in this podcast, of which I'm a great fan. <laughs> oh, well, we're great fans of yours as well. And we're also great fans of Bartek Plotka, who's also joining us. Hello, Bartek. Hello. Nice to be here. Botek is an engineer at Red Hat, a maintainer of many open source projects in Go. You've probably seen his name around GitHub here and there. You, yeah, maintainer of Prometheus and Thanos, and you're authoring Efficient Go. Is that right, Botek? That's correct. Hopefully published 
this year. <laughs> yeah, that's exciting. How is it writing a book? Is it what you thought it was going to be? Definitely not. Definitely not. <laughs> Lots of pros and cons. Lots of learnings. Mm -hmm. I think it's worth it, but maybe once, mm. just once, once a lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> just one book will do. Yeah, mm. that's how you feel now. Maybe you'll get the buzz. Exactly. Get the, yeah, you get the bug for it. Well, we'll see. Okay, so maybe we could just start at the beginning. For people not familiar, what is instrumentation? What's it useful for? Bartek, maybe you could kick us off. Right. So how I see the instrumentation is essentially it's about generating the signals that will tell us later on how your application is behaving when you don't have visible access to you know, how it's running. So maybe you are putting that on production in your cloud, so maybe on your friend's machine, just spinning up the process out of your Goldman code that you created. And you have to have some kind of, well, those magic words, monitoring or observability. So ability to really derive the, the state of this application only from its observability or monitoring signals. So in order to generate those signals, we need instrumentations. So essentially, we need instruments that tells us you know, what is happening remotely. This is as simple as that. Now, of course, this can go even more complex because you can have either manual instrumentation. So you are directly adding a code statement to your Go application to add a log line, to add a metric, to create a span, tracing span. Or maybe there is a goal, Golang runtime logic that um, creates profiling, right? And probably we can discuss this, uh, you know, all of this uh, in this in this episode. But uh, there are also automatic instrumentation mechanisms where you can deduce the application state essentially from, let's say, closed closed box pattern, where you can essentially ask uh, operating system. So essentially, kernel. This is what is very popular nowadays with this eBPF solutions that allows you to you know, really understand what process is doing mm. without any manual statement, right? So essentially, this is the, the, the categorization, like manual instrumentation, automatic, all to derive some signals. Great. And so what's this useful for then? So we, we find out that, like, we can find out things going on inside. So what's like a specific example of something that you might want to instrument and then report on? So feel free Bjorn, to chime in, but there are plenty of things. Like, And I think first and the foremost is something that we can read in popular SRE book, right? So essentially, uh, you know, Google team who kind of created this SRE movement, site reliability engineering, we can read there that monitoring is like a key component in building any application, you know, in the cloud. And the reason for it is that you don't know if it's running, if you don't observe some signals. Mm -hmm. So health monitoring is kind of the first thing you do. You want to ensure that it's actually doing any work if you are not looking on it, if you are not actively poking, you know, using its, I don't know, HTTP requests or, or looking into, you know, its work items. So health is the first thing you want to check out probably. And so that's like a real endpoint running on the server that just returns like some okay. And so if you can reach that then you know the server's at least up. That's the basic, yeah, that's the basic solution. Mm. That is not the best because if you're not looking, then it might be down in those you know, periods when you are not poking it for 200 requests, right? Yeah. So there are many, many different methods of how you can possess this information about healthiness. 
I mean, the what we got with the age of cloud or the age of distributed systems was also a notion of that just being up or down isn't, it's not that easy anymore, right? Your servers consist of many microservices and every microservice has many instances. Some of them are always down because once you have enough of them, they will never all be up. So you get into this whole area of, yeah, I mean, we have to tolerate a bit of downness. And then you start to think that just probing for up or down for this like binary result isn't enough anymore. This is where you start to want perhaps some metrics <laughs> about your uh, running tasks. And that's where the instrumentation also, I think, gets into the game, right? If you just run a probe to see if something up, you arguably don't really need instrumentation. You just check out if your endpoint is up, right? And I mean, this is what I call the founding myth of Prometheus. I have to talk about Prometheus, of course. <laughs> I don't know if it's literally true. I was joining the Prometheus team very early in its history, but not from the beginning, right? So I also got this just from stories. So this is why, like, it's all myth <laughs> in the distance past. But I mean, sometimes you get nice stories from that, right? And the yeah. mythological version is that the first idea for Prometheus was actually, we need to instrument our code for metrics. And then the initial founder started to create an instrumentation library. And I like to believe it was the Go library they created first. It might have been the Java library, but let's assume it was the Go library because it's a Go podcast, and that <laughs> might even be true. Would you assume that it was the Java one on Java time? <laughs> I don't know. I think I will never be on Java time if there is anything. <laughs> okay. We'll see. Oh. So... This was the initial spark of inspirations. There was an instrumentation library where you could uh, instrument for metrics and you would expose a separate endpoint. I think Bartek mentioned that shortly, that uh, you have a separate endpoint where you not just collect is it up, but you can collect the data from the inside of your running binary. And then the next question was, okay, how do we scrape this data? And where do we collect it? How do we store it? How do we read it? How do we query it? And this is where then the Prometheus server got invented, essentially. But it all started with instrumentation. And maybe with the Go library, which still exists. And Bartek is the current maintainer of it. And I'm the past maintainer of it. <laughs> wow. It's one of the most used Go packages in the universe, I think. Wow, in the, in the universe. Wow. I mean, that's assuming Go only exists on this planet. And we can't say for sure that... Or just in this universe, because there is a multiverse, from what the movies tell me. Yeah. Still not bad, though, if you're the best Go package in this particular universe, even if... In this particular, yeah. Yeah, even if there's more yeah. stars in other uh -huh. universes. Is there Go on Mars? There must be Go on Mars, right? Yeah, there must be by now. Yeah, that's great. And then there might be client Golang, Prometheus client Golang might be on Mars as well. Who knows? Probably. It's running in all the German, like on the rail stations, they, they use it to monitor those. Do they? So it's running everywhere around me. It's pretty cool. Oh, if only you'd instrumented it and was reporting that somewhere so you could see where all the places it was running. <laughs> That'd be awesome. Actually, I would like that as a feature, please. Because... Uh, for yeah, all packages, we ought to have that so we can see how it's being used. The popularity of this library is actually, for me, it was a huge surprise. And that's also, I think, an important topic about instrumentation. That back then, like we we're talking about the year 2012, it was very uncommon for normal developers to even think about instrumentation. I mean, if they really thought about it, they would realize even putting a printf statement for debugging into their code or a log line, emitting a log line, that's already instrumentation. Mm. Instrumenting code for like profiling is instrumentation. Luckily, we get this for free in Go. So they 
kind of did instrumentation, but they would never think about instrumentation for monitoring. This was completely an ops concern, right? And developers would never think about ops concerns. And teaching them that they have to instrument their code for things like monitoring was a big deal, right? I didn't expect that would get traction so quickly. But of course, DevOps movement, blah, 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 all those things. So that might have helped. Also, developers might have pretty quickly realized that uh, if you instrument your code for even more things like metrics or tracing or profiles, that it even helps during development. That's also an important thing that monitoring per se is, is everywhere in the stack, right? It's not just in the end when you add it as an afterthought and you need it to run your system. Different people have different needs, right? So when we talk about sort of the operational, sort of if your if your organization is large enough to have a dedicated ops team where the people who care about the 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 VMs, right, and basically making sure that uh, you know CPU is not spiking or there's enough memory or whatever it is, like managing sort of that, if you will, the lower level uh, set of concerns, sort of at the at the infrastructure operational level, and then you you know as you sort of go up the stack, if you will. Then you have a different set of concerns, right? You have the developers that are instrumenting, maybe to find out, okay, how you know, if, let's say you wanted to sort of uh, send traces out, right? You want to, okay, what in this long running process, I'm gonna have a, a subspan, right, to tell me how long this particular part of of the whole thing is taking and things like that. So that gives you that sort of that debugability, right, that understanding of what your system is doing on any given sort of request kind of thing. But then I think there's an even higher level to that where you know you instrument things and you can tell right the um, whoever asked that okay the service is up right i can hit a health endpoint of readiness endpoint hopefully it's not just a ping to, to get a, a tcp response but maybe it's something you're doing something meaningful that says okay the system is operational it's actually ready to process requests successfully kind of thing um, but beyond that right you're gonna have the can you answer is this thing doing what the business wants out of it right so you're not just saying is this thing up Right. If your thing is up, but it's, you know, maybe you're failing process one out of every 100, you know, credit card transactions, you know, and you can't explain why. Right. At scale, that's millions of dollars potentially. Right. So there are some things that the business is going to care about. Right. That instrumentation can help you answer. Right. But you have these all these these different layers right, of observability. Different parties are going to be interested in different things, uh, right? Depending on depending on who you ask. I still have people who use Nagios as as a tool for instrumentation. Well, I'm not going to throw my developers into a Nagios dashboard and say, "Hey, go answer me some questions about you know the business KPIs or something," right? But yeah, I'm going to use you know kind of different tools. But I think the observability really it's I think it's an all encompassing term now, which I think has gotten sort of diluted a little bit um, ever since we sort of. We transitioned from calling things monitoring, right, to now using sort of the more uh, um, trendy term observability. And I think that's going to mean different things to different people. But, you know, like instrumentation sort of remains, I think, at the end of the day, whether it's automatic or sort of manual, that sort of remains, for the developer specifically, that sort of remains the, the ultimate source of truth beyond logging, right? Yeah, and I would like to kind of add something to your points, both Bjorn and Johnny, about instrumentation, I think it's very underestimated, you know, how much work it takes to really build a solid instrumentation library. Because like um, the amount of work you put Bjorn in this client Golang that you were surprised is popular, well, it's because it's so hard to produce one. And especially when I joined kind of maintainership of this package or like module really, it is so much work in terms of, you know, making sure the code is efficient because suddenly so many, you know, 
applications are just you know importing this package so mm. modules so suddenly you know the amount of dependencies really matters the amount of you know the efficiency of the code matters the api scope script of this really really matters and i was just today trying to well what we did let's be honest we made a little bit of mistake on the us client going so go, go team member really helped us to implement you know essentially move to different runtime metrics for Golang processor. So in client Golang, you are able to essentially expose really info- interesting information about your Golang process and around garbage collection routine and uh, memory and essentially heap allocations, like what, how many tiny objects and big objects you are kind of allocating, like very low, low level information. So we kind of consume that and we, we merge this contribution without clearly looking on maybe like uh, how many metrics you are exposing and we suddenly expose maybe twice more metrics and suddenly we are impacting, you know, many Golang services because suddenly you, they are scraping, you know, twice more more metrics. So the kind of thought, amount of thoughts that have to go through those instrumentation libraries is enormous. It's not only metrics and it's even worse when you are talking about logging instrumentation and trace instrumentation because it's just even more data that you are passing through you want to pay for this application compute power for doing you know a, a normal work and not monitoring right and sometimes if you implement it wrongly if you use those libraries wrongly if you make maybe wrong decisions you can pay much more for your observability than for your real application. that's a risk here right mm. so it really matters doesn't it it's amazing actually to think of that like I genuinely probably naively thought that that library was quite simple, that it was just had some helpers that were collect buffering maybe, and then sending off batches or making them available or something. But yeah, now when you mention like, often I will tell people, don't worry too much about optimizing yet. Like get something built that works first and you can optimize it later when it becomes a problem, if it ever does. This is one of those times where it really matters that this isn't an expensive thing because, yeah, people are calling these methods all the time, aren't they? They use that client everywhere. It's almost in every code path. You definitely don't want to think. You don't want to consider if you use that or not. You just want to use it and it doesn't have a significant penalty. Like similar to when I realize in a Go binary, like profiling is kind of always on and you just have this endpoint if you just like anonymously import this package and stuff like that. It was like, weird, isn't that expensive? Should I switch that off in my real production binary? But no, it's like, it's all designed to be like, I don't know, a fraction of a percent of your total resource usage. So you just leave it on, you don't ask questions. And when you actually get in trouble, it's there. And it doesn't matter if it's like developer trouble or ops trouble, it's just there. And that's so cool and so good to have. Right. But there are, you know, configuration variables for those uh, Golang profiling that increases the frequency of increasing the sampling or frequency of CPU profiling that can trash your application completely. Or you can actually reduce it. So there's lots of things you can control here. And in the what you just described, Bartek, right, with those new Go runtime metrics, now we also need to consider if we make this user configurable because it's so many metrics that if you don't need them, it might be too expensive, right? So you, of course, there are traders, but the ideal state in like some utopia is you just have everything on and it costs you nothing. And we try to get as close as possible to that.
This episode is brought to you by Chronosphere. When it comes to true cloud native monitoring, metrics are the backbone of your observability implementation. Teams need reliable, scalable, and efficient metrics so they can know about issues well before their customers do. Companies born in the cloud native era often start with Prometheus for monitoring, which is obviously an amazing piece of software, but they quickly push it to its limits and they often outgrow it. They run into issues with siloed data, missing long-term storage, and wasted engineering time firefighting the monitoring system versus delivering their application with confidence. They describe the system as a house of cards, where a single developer's seemingly benign change can overload the whole monitoring system, or they say they're flying blind because they pride themselves on making data-driven decisions, but losing visibility means they lose this competitive edge. Ryan Sokol, VP of Engineering at DoorDash, has this to say about Chronosphere, quote, the visibility and control that Chronosphere's platform gives us to manage our observability data and costs are a game changer, especially with our unprecedented growth, end quote. Chronosphere is the observability platform for cloud native teams operating at scale. Learn more and get a demo at chronosphere.io. Again, chronosphere.io. Patek, you mentioned earlier that you made a mistake in the client. What was that specifically? You're right. <laughs> Let's talk about mistakes, yes. <laughs> if you don't mind. Of course, of course. That makes me feel better. Yeah, so I think that the mistake is really around, you know, we didn't have time, you know, to review exactly properly everything and the change was, was pretty big. And as maintainers of client library, I think we just kind of get that from Bjorn hands. So we are kind of pretty new. And um, essentially, the, usually it's really about uh, memory runtime metrics that Golang allows you to achieve. So usually what you did, what you could do, you could create this runtime.menstats structure and you can create, you can just you know, kind of uh, program runtime.read memstats and provide the structure and that will fill you the structure with statistics. And this is how we used to kind of get those metrics and give you kind of um, very easy one line statement that you provide in the beginning of your application that continuously expose this information up to date so Prometheus can scrape it and have you know up to date heap information you know how many allocations you did on the heap what's your gc latency and so on now what happened in the go i think 1.17 was that runtime slash metrics package was introduced that kind of give even more information about internal Go runtime. And uh, we wanted to switch essentially to, to this new format, right? Uh, so totally like go away from this uh, memstats logic. However, what's happening with especially metrics is that we all care about cardinality. We make sure the metric is stable because this is what allows us to aggregate over time and, and over, over, over different series and kind of compare each other like this is kind of the key concept behind metrics and also the cost of metric system really depends on uniqueness of those series right so yeah we just introduce uh, a new unique series so a new names and this is kind of what we could avoid what we could what we are trying to kind of uh, kind of fix right now is to add essentially some optionality right some configuration pieces so especially because this library is so used so popular we need to make sure it by default doesn't increase your metric count twice. So this is generally kind of what we try to achieve. So you know, we have a, a kind of community who wants to have this new runtime, amazing granular metrics. 
So we kind of approve it and merge it. And then suddenly the rest of the world was like, oh, why I need to pay twice more. I don't understand really. So this is the, the, the really the trade-offs we have to make in for such popular module. It's kind of much more stressful and kind of um, much more work than if you if you could just break API, you know, on every every release. Yeah, that is like big responsibility, like not only because it took off and became popular, but also the nature of it, the fact that it's found its way everywhere. I mean, it really is probably everywhere now. So it really does matter the decisions you take. How do you balance that? Like, is, is it a tough balance? Do you argue, do you, is there a disagreement about what can get in? And not, is, are there some people that are really paying attention to that cost? Definitely, yeah. Like we, after merging this feature, we got like 20 or 12, let's say, issues. So, and like very friendly ones. So, so we were very, very, I mean, it was amazing community contributions to just, you know, report uh, some problems. So I think it's that that's the pros and cons of like um, such big mod, such popular module as that you, you get like early feedback, but also you have to kind of make sure you're not making mistakes a lot. But generally speaking, yeah, um, I think there are basic rules when you're writing any Golang code, especially that is consumed by, by others, like library modules and packages that saves your, your life. For example, any new feature you should add under new API, under new methods. You don't change, you know, the existing code. Whenever we want to change something, we are having this uh, in comments slash slash deprecated kind of, um, you know, special word that is actually handled by the IDs like Goland and, 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 and others um, that automatically, you know, points you that this code is, you know, well, it's for compatibility reasons there, but there is better solution somewhere else. So there are certain rules that you can you can go with. But of course, at some point, you need to consider V2 or V3 or V100. That's a big chunk of work, unfortunately, nowadays with Go. Yeah, yeah. I like that you got nice issues, though, at least. Like someone's like, you know, thank you so much. I love the recent PR, but... But I need to pay millions more, yeah. My kid didn't need to go to college anyway. Probably smart enough, didn't need it. <laughs> But that's nice that they're nice. Be nice on GitHub, everybody. That's the lesson there. Yeah, and this is why I solved the switches, because you were you were nice to me. Yeah, exactly. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Even for features that are really like non-controversial, it's if a package is used so frequently, you are really, really, really concerned about not breaking anyone. And that sometimes is weird, right? Also, when we added exemplars, exemplars is also a huge thing, right? In recently Perhaps we can talk about that later, but like for now, it's just a feature, a new feature that we didn't think about before. Now we had to add new methods to an interface and stuff like that, but we didn't want to break anyone. So now you need interface upgrades, like little Go tricks. They look weird if you just look at them like in isolation. But if you realize, okay, I couldn't break the users of the old interface, then it perhaps makes sense. But you get this kind of cruft in the library. And I think we have been talking about a legendary V2 for many years. It's <laughs> never happened. But they also like you conserve weird coding patterns back then in 2012, 2013. Yeah. Uh, guess what we all thought? For consistency. Channels are the coolest thing, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we put channels <laughs> in the function signatures, essentially use them as like concurrency safe iterators, which yeah. no, <laughs> that's not what they're supposed to be used for. Uh, but they're still there because if we now just change and tell you, listen, here's this much cleaner 
signature for the function. Now, please, all the code in the world, please change to that new function. <laughs> that's pretty hard. So we still have those channels there. And if you think that's weird, yes, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the cruft you mentioned is interesting because in Go especially, we pay a lot of attention to writing very easy to read, maintainable code. And sometimes we'll sacrifice performance in the right place you know, for readability. And then whenever you have to then optimize, of course, you're doing different things, right? You're, you're doing more complicated things or you're finding little ways to save memory or avoid allocations, those kinds of tricks. And then you end up with sort of mess and unusual bits and things you wouldn't be very proud of maybe. But really like that's just the reality kind of how it evolves. And I think the stability in the API is worth it. And I'm sure the community thanks you for the attention paid at that level because yeah if this was a package that was just breaking every all the time and you never knew what you'd end up with all kinds of horrible things when like a dependency used a different version and things like this so i think yeah, i can speak for everybody when i say thanks for that yeah lots of trade-offs there are um, there are there and i think what's also cool about this is it's just one module these days it's so popular to create like uh, instrumentation libraries with like 10 modules because you want to be I don't know, generic or have different versioning across. It's really hard to consume. Mm. But I have actually a question, uh, Bjorn, to you. So you kind of started this library, I presume. Have you been um, designing the APIs with optimization in mind and you did benchmarking or you rather created APIs so it functionally works and only then maybe after a couple of years you were maybe optimizing implementation? I didn't start it, right? I took over from the founders of the Prometheus project, like Matt and Julius. They started this. And when I joined the team in 2013, I think, then I was like one of the tasks I took over was this instrumentation library. And even back then, like it started essentially with the whole rewrite. <laughs> but I tried to keep like the spirit intact. And yeah, we thought a lot about optimization because we knew like this is in every path <laughs> if you instrument your code but often we were wrong right and benchmarks micro benchmarks is a cool tool uh, my actually my first GopherCon talk that was at the second GopherCon ever or third i don't know like back then i was really really exciting it went quite well this was essentially about how to increment a float in a concurrency safe way and still so that it doesn't kill your performance and it's a little lecture i mean this is perhaps why this talk went well because Back then, we were all learning and it was a little lecture how like micro benchmarks can help you and also cover those things. But yeah, it's, of course, like all the stories about premature optimizations and everything. It's interesting how also later you realize when your programs get faster and they, they want to increment this counter really often, how that is problematic. Then you have histograms where you want to increment buckets <laughs> and then you realize they have to be incremented all together because otherwise you can get inconsistent results if you collect your data it at the wrong time and then this this created a whole um, talk from mine at gophercon uk about like all this concurrent programming how you can do a log free atomic increment of all those buckets in the histogram and yeah, it's kind of even from an academic point of view, it's interesting, but it all comes with this warning. Just don't this for, I mean, please do this for fun, but not in your production code. But if you do it in your production code, it should be really well justified. Is this really in a path where all this complexity is worth it and all the risk you take by doing this in the weird way? Like if you like, you can just go into the histogram code in 
Prometheus Klein Golang, it's really weird. <laughs> but it's also fun, yeah. So speaking for, um, I'd like to sort of put myself in the shoes of a, of a user, right, of these instrumentation libraries, and I see how you're a maintainer of them, as we've sort of been, that's sort of the lens we've been using uh, um, for a little bit. So if I wanted to sort of instrument my code, so we've already sort of uh, um, teased out, right, what, what instrumentation means to different different tiers, right, um, within the sort of all the people who are concerned about sort of observability, right? So if I wanted to, if I'm new to observability, right, and I'm looking to sort of uh, figure out, okay, what does it even mean to instrument my code? Like, what is it that I should be looking at, right? How do I, how do I figure out whether I should be measuring requests per second versus latency? Like, what, how do I even approach this world, right? And obviously, there are the different libraries that do different things. There's Prometheus. You know, I have to figure out where that fits, fits in my stack. There's OpenTelemetry, and then there's metrics, and there's this, and there's that. Like, I have traces. Like, how do I, as a developer, when do I use what tool and for what? I think there is a problem that uh, who knows if you use Prometheus for metrics collection, perhaps you use something else, and then you want to instrument not just for metrics, but for all the other things. And of course, you have a lot of choices to make, and then there are a lot of efforts to unify this, like open telemetry is definitely a huge effort of like tying up all the loose ends, and it's really hard, right? So the first question in a practical context is, you should look at what your organization you're working in is doing. And often they use some framework, right? They use whatever. Let's start with a web router. You have your favorite Go web router or whatever. And then from there on, you can kind of inform that decision. At SoundCloud, we had a like the most microservices at SoundCloud are running on the JVM. And they had a, this is also like, Somewhere in the public, people talk about it. They had a kit for that, right? Um, I think it was called JVM Kit, where they had all the framework how to write a microservice at SoundCloud. And then they put instrumentation in there. So just merely by using this framework, which you would use anyway, you were instrumented for traces, for metrics. You got some logging, some standardized logging. It's all in there. When we, we phrased this, we we phrased this coin, yeah. Now we coined the phrase that at SoundCloud it was easier to get monitoring than to not get monitoring. You couldn't avoid it, right? <laughs> and that's for many developers, you're already in some framework, uh, maybe literally like a software framework or the framework of your organization. And there might be something, or if there's nothing, you might just put the pieces in there and you could look for the right thing. I mean, rarely you have like a greenfield approach. If you do, I mean, that's also fun, of course. You start your first Go program, and then you could just link in the Prometheus client Golang. It's like there's there are very minimalist uh, programs in the documentation where you can just link it in, expose an HTTP endpoint, and do nothing else, and you already get metrics for all the Go runtime stuff, for some process metrics. That's like more like an OS-level stuff. And so you don't have to do anything to already get ton of useful metrics out of your program and then you can go on you can like do really low level metrics instrumentation i i also have a talk about this somewhere in my portfolio <laughs> we might link this but there's also a set of middlewares i don't know perhaps Bartik, you can talk about the middlewares we have because that's also very nice go how go does http thing it plays very well with that yeah it's, it's worth to mention because you don't need to re-implement every possible metric instrumentation. So for example, if your application is doing HTTP requests, which probably 90% of applications that you don't need to create a special, you know, separate HTTP request uh, metric or 
or actually Logline and Trace as well, there are libraries that abstract this for you and say, uh, you're using standard HTTP library to create the server. You can just put a middleware, which is essentially a wrapper over your HTTP handlers that will instrument automatically with very consistent metrics that are already someone fought through those to make sense, to make something reasonable. And actually, the other plus of it is that you are you are getting a lot of observability for free. So someone probably already built some Grafana dashboards and maybe alerts and maybe recording rules for, for this information, right? So I think Bjorn, you created an HTTP, prom HTTP package in Prometheus client Golang, which already does that. And I'm maintaining gRPC library because, you know, uh, we are using gRPC a lot. It's very popular protocol and we have literally the same middleware. They are called interceptors, but essentially they are like wrappers over gRPC things that adds metrics, but also we add logging and tracing in this module we could link. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Fire Hydrant. Fire Hydrant is the reliability platform for every developer. Incidents impact everyone, not just SREs. Fire Hydrant gives teams the tools to maintain service catalogs, respond to incidents, communicate through status pages, and learn with retrospectives. What would normally be manual, error-prone tasks across the entire spectrum of responding to an incident, this can all be automated in every way with Fire Hydrant. Fire Hydrant gives you incident tooling to manage incidents of any type with any severity with consistency. You can declare and mitigate incidents all inside Slack. Service catalogs allow service owners to improve operational maturity and document all your deploys in your service catalog. Incident analytics light extract meaningful insights about your reliability over any facet of your incident or the people who respond to them. And at the heart of it all, incident runbooks, they let you create custom automation rules to convert manual tasks into automated, reliable, repeatable sequences that run when you want. Create Slack channels, Jira tickets, Zoom bridges instantly after declaring an incident. Now your processes can be consistent and automatic. Try Fire Hydrant free for 14 days. Get access to every feature, no credit card required. Get started at firehydrant.io. Again, firehydrant.io. And by our friends at FlatFile, the leading data onboarding platform for teams who don't want to build yet another CSV uploader. FlatFile's powerful out-of-the-box solution takes the data burden off your shoulders, freeing you to solve bigger business problems and build products people love. Get to usable data faster so you can focus on what matters most for your business. It's incredibly fast to set up. Write just a few lines of code and get up and running in hours, not days. It is framework agnostic. Use the SDK to integrate FlatFile into any JavaScript application with support for all major frameworks. Frameworks. Learn more and get started today at flatfile.com. Again, flatfile.com. That brings us to a new segment that I've just literally made up, but the editors do a great job when I do this. It's time for Explain It Quickly. So I'm going to challenge you, Bartek, to explain exemplars as quick as you can. Exemplars, we mentioned them earlier. What are they? 
Okay, quickest. Go. <laughs> I think the easiest way <laughs> to, to mention this, it is essentially an information that allows you to show an example situation that triggered some metric increment or metric uh, latency observation, size observation, whatever you are measuring. And you can essentially, usually it's just a string, some characters and some timestamp and actually exact value of this example situation. So usually we put there a trace ID to correlate with other signals like tracing. But we can put request ID, for example, to correlate with logging. You can put anything. But it's pretty useful for recognizing an example situation that is represented by this metric increase, decrease observation. Cool. Congratulations. That's very, very well explained and pretty quick as well, which really gets into the spirit of things. So thank you for that. Okay, but you don't include an example in every case, right? Do you do this kind of randomly? How do you decide when to emit an exemplar? Bjorn, go for it. I can see you want to speak that. Do I? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not even sure if I'm the most qualified person for that. But anyway, if you use metrics to measure something that is essentially just a whole bunch of events, like your HTTP request, then metrics means you count them all together, you kind of aggregate along certain dimensions. And then you have this like gigantic number of requests, but you can't save them all. So this is where Exemplar is coming from. Like it's just an example. So you pick one and then, of course, which one do you pick? Do you pick a one that represents a normal request or do you pick one that's like an exceptional one? Probably you should do one of each or something, but not too many of the regular ones because they are boring. You just want them for reference. Like that's actually a super interesting question. And we have a similar thing when you do like logging or tracing where you do try to collect every single event and you realize you can't really do this. So the naive thing is I just sample every thousandth complicated word (laughs) or uh, then you realize no that's just getting me the regular ones but i want those rare ones that have like a long latency or they failed for some reason so it's super interesting decision and i think this is a hot topic of research right now right which exemplars do i actually want to have the current like if you have a normal prometheus histogram and put exemplars there they just put the last observation that fell into each bucket, which is, I think it's a pretty Mm. good heuristics because you get exactly like one exemplar for every latency band you're interested in, which is a good start, I think. But I think this can be improved upon and it will be interesting what the future brings here. And I think it's important to mention that uh, exactly what you did say about sampling. Like we have to make sure the example you put, you put there, so example trace ID, it is the one that will be sampled and provided in your tracing backend, right? So those system has to be at some point connected. And I made some demo, like it is very possible with client goal, like to just talk to your uh, tracing library to tell what trace ID you can put as long as you know it's sampled. But of course, there is a problem if you have tail sampling and, and other complex scenarios. So it's definitely not solved problem. Yeah, we had those discussions a lot. Like you should just... The tracing system should just sample those that Prometheus has at exemplars. That's the one direction. Or the other is you somehow want to tell your your binary to pick the exemplars according to what your tracing system has sampled. So it's a bit of yeah, hand and neck problem. Anyway, if you are using client GoLang and you are using tracing and you are not using exemplars, you are missing out. Like it's a very underestimated feature. Please use it. There you go. When should you adjust your sampling? Like in the beginning, are you just basically saying, okay, I don't want any sampling. I want everything. 
right? Because I don't understand the system yet. I want to see, I want to detect patterns or something like that. And then uh, maybe before production, you pick a, you know something that makes sense for the given the amount of volume and cost, right? Uh, because the more data you collect, the more expensive it gets. So what decisions are you making about sampling and at what point in time? Baltic, you should be in a better position to answer. <laughs> sure. So <laughs> it's a really tough situation because it's really around tracing, instrumentation, and libraries. Usually sampling is not application-driven. It's really communicated or like done on, on collector level or agents. And so there are different phases you can do that. So um, it has to be collaboration between between every every of those signals, which we what works for us is that, you know, literally we use that on our production system is you have whatever sampling it suits you as long as it's not tail sampling. <laughs> so then it's very easy to essentially provide a proper exemplar to the proper metric. As long as it's tail, yeah, this is kind of impossible. Can you define tail sampling? Yeah, of course. Uh, so tail sampling is when you decide that you save. You can do this slowly, Bartek. This isn't part of the segment. Do it fast. <laughs> you can just take your time on this one. So tail sampling is when you decide if you are throwing a trace span or you are saving it in, the, in your backend system after the event, the request happened, because as we know, traces are really bound to some requests. And it's very useful because you, you can often have a heuristic that will decide if you sample or not based on the result of this request. If it was slow or if it's failure, then probably it's interesting to sample that. If it's a, just a success, it's boring. Like who, who wants to check successes, right? So uh, characteristic along those lines are tail sampling. Yeah, so this actually, the more I learn and hear about this, the more complicated it seems. Should everyone pay attention to this like now? What point in a career like should a young engineer really start paying attention to this? Because... Like you said, Bjorn, we used to, we didn't really do it at all. It was kind of handled usually by somebody else in some other way. And Johnny, you mentioned that you use monitoring to find out if the system is doing what the business needs it to do. So it's pretty important, isn't it? Should this be a fundamental piece that everyone gets to grips with in some small way at least? I wrote this little piece in this 99 things, 97 things, sorry, every SRE should know about the third age of SRE. And it kind of ends with that sentence where we are like really in the third age of SRE if SRE is like taught at universities. You just, as if you're a computer scientist student in your, like, even before you get your bachelor, you should have a few courses about let's call it SRE. I mean, I don't know, words are hard, right? And those things would definitely include that you need to instrument everything. And it's just essential. If you are like looking for your first job, you might even check out if that company you're working for is already doing this. Because if you're experienced with that already, you could even evangelize this in an organization. And it's great fun because it's so satisfying to see all the progress you made by just introducing this, right? I mean, that was the and back at SoundCloud when nobody knew if the site is even up and then even the like simplest things you do that there are so much relief mm -hmm. so that can also be quite good but if you want to learn something in your first job and you want a role model organization to work for that might be a good topic to look at if they are doing proper monitoring oh good question for the interview there maybe Johnny you're aren't you an SRE aren't you literally an SRE right now 
Yeah. And I just realized where I've come across Beyond before. We we're both co-authors on the same book, 97 Things I Realized Sorry You Should Know. <laughs> <laughs> That's how you met. Okay. <laughs> yeah. That's a nice way to meet. I know, right? The other 95 should all get together with the other 95 <laughs> and have a big party. The, the weird thing is there are actually 98 things in the book and mine is right, the 98th. Right. So perhaps I don't really belong <laughs> to it. Is one of them a section on off by one errors? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And the funny thing is, it's not one per author. It's like there's like a, there's fewer than 97. Oh, that'll save your effort. Authors or 98 in this case. Yeah. And then some of us have wrote like two or three. I'll save the flumps. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. That's funny. Well, it sounds good. Well, I recommend people get that book, by the way. I've, yeah. I've read it and yeah, I genuinely do recommend it. Guess what? It's that time. It's time for Unpopular Opinions. Who has an unpopular opinion for us? I have a very pressing unpopular opinion. Mm. <laughs> it's because we already used that word that I mm. don't like, and I hope I didn't use it. Mm. That's the O word, <laughs> which is the word observability, right? I mean, my unpopular opinion is that I think this word, if it ever had a reason to be used in our profession here, it has lost all meaning by now. I can very well understand why people came up with this word because, I mean, I already talked about like this paradigm shift that people sensed when like this word developers thought monitoring is just an ops concern and ops people were monitoring by just probing the HTTP ports or something or pinging the server or something like that and staring at dashboards. And when people realized this is not uh, enough, and then you started to realize there's so much more you need it for other things like just keeping your site up. We didn't even talk about things like capacity planning. I mean, we talked about business a bit, right? And then all those like different signals you have. So I totally understand that some people felt this urge, we need a new word for that, right? But then I don't know, like observability, arguably it's coming from control theory and it's I mean, I think control theory is super relevant for monitoring, right? But it's a rather specific theory. And like just taking a single technical term from a theory and telling everyone, this is now the new word. I'm more a fan of, instead of overgeneralizing a very specific term, just take the existing terms and appreciate and acknowledge that we have all very different ideas what that term actually means and try to find like a wider, more common understanding of that term, right? Now, of course, the problem was also that then people used this word observability to essentially say, so you are just doing monitoring, but I'm doing observability or my, <laughs> my product, my software project is an observability project and yours is just a monitoring project um, <laughs> and then it became a bit of like a word to fight over what that means is then the marketing people will pick it up right and then someone came mm -hmm. up with the legendary three pillars of observability which sounds so great and i mean it was as a concept it really conveyed some insight and some widening of ideas but of course everyone picked it up the marketing people picked it up and then it was used so much that it became like, then people had to discuss why three pillars of observability isn't even enough. So you, you run in circles, you have the same thing. And I don't know, like, of course, I was brought up at Google, essentially, where they just called in monitoring 
and they had tracing before people knew it, what it was and all those things, right? And we just called it monitoring and it just worked fine, right? So for me, it's like observability. It's like, if you want to use the term, it's something like a property of your system you want to have. But for me, it's a subset of monitoring. Well, most people think like monitoring is something that might be part of observability, observability or not even. I don't know, like, what's his name? I always blank out on names. No worries, but ju I just realized, <laughs> Bjorn, that I was always saying that monitoring is subset of observability, and now we are saying it's opposite, I guess. I was close. Yeah. Corey Quinn. Corey Quinn said, <laughs> he always says on his <laughs> podcast, observability is the hipster word for monitoring. And <laughs> I kind of like that, but I would say observability is the marketing word for monitoring, right? And if mm. engineers call something a marketing word, it's probably doesn't mean anything good in a way, right? So I think if I use the word, it might mean exactly what I want or it might mean nothing. And yeah, I just stopped using the word. I just use monitoring. And if you ever hear me use the word monitoring, I use it in the widest sense. It's not just Nagios probes and it's not just metrics. It's everything, right? <laughs> Do you use the word serverless? I do use the word serverless, but it's so, um, yeah. <laughs> Bartek yeah. and I just dis discussed <laughs> yesterday, or was it was it today? Yeah, no, it was today, like it's a long day. <laughs> we discussed how there are serverless applications that are not really serverless, and then there are the true serverless applications that nobody really caters for because it's so rare that you have this pure use case. But yeah, I mean, words are fluid, right? We have to embrace that. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't become better if you add more words to the to the mix <laughs> and then very aggressively push them. Well, we'll be tweeting out that opinion to find out once and for all if that is indeed unpopular or not. Bartek, have you got an unpopular opinion? Oh, yeah. Do we have a time for my unpopular opinions? We do. It depends. How long is it? Depends. Yeah. Let's see. All right, so yeah. quickly, let's measure it. <laughs> so I was thinking a lot, like I have many unpopular opinions, but some of it that I would truly want to, I don't know, inspire others is that stay with me on this. It might sound childish and unprofessional for the start, but I think Go language is the best foundation and platform to program every software in the world. And I'm living in it from embedding system, embedded system, robots, browsers, mobile devices, I don't know, machine learning, configuration even like infrastructure as a code. And I mean it because I, in my experience, I was working with many programming languages, Pascal, PHP, C++, Python. I mean, yeah, many, many, even niche ones like Smalltalk, Prolog. And the reason why I stayed and I kind of work, I have been working with Go, I don't know, maybe seven, eight years and I, and I still love it is, it's, I mean, there are many reasons already stated in Go time, so let's not repeat that. But the point I want to make is that it's very powerful to keep this Go language as a foundation to to create more specialized tooling, right? And you can have a lot of benefits by just keeping, you know, this foundation to have to inherit simplicity, reliability patterns, tooling, like for example, IDE integrations, documentation building, auto-completion. Like some of it is that for example, like um, yeah, JSON language for configuration. Maybe it's good, but I don't have hints when I kind of point my fields uh, of this JSON at JSON. Nothing kind of hints me what the structure actually implements. And Golang already have that, right? So why not reusing this and building on the on the shoulders of giant? And I really mean that. And we have like, um, we use configuration in my past job to build kind of configuration for infrastructure in Go. And, you know, it wasn't perfect because 
there are some features of the language that maybe are too much. You have for loops, you have error checking, and you have a little bit of boilerplate. But if you refine the language, maybe specialize a little bit, then it might just fit the use case just very well. Why we are creating, you know, a totally new languages from scratch, like Q or JSONet, if, if Go is, is so almost perfect, if a little bit is needed to, to, to perfection. And maybe last example, embedded systems I mentioned. Of course, garbage collection is, is not very efficient here. But there are already, you know, implementations of manual, um, you know, allocations. I think DGraph created like a special allocator. And there's even VLang, which also kind of removed GC, but kept some of the features that Golang did. So we might have maybe a version of Go that has Rust-like memory ownership. And that would be amazing because we keep other features instead of kind of living with totally different decisions that Rust community made for other stuff that maybe I'm happy with. Right? So that's my unpopular opinion here. Wow, I'll genuinely be interested to see if that isn't popular with our audience, because maybe a lot of people would agree with you. I don't know. The Go fans should all agree, right? Go fans. But I disagree. For one, I think it's a truly unpopular opinion because I disagree with Great. it. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for today, but this has really flown and that's how you know we've had a good conversation. So thank you so much for that. We heard all about monitoring there and availability. The myth of Prometheus, very interesting, the origins there of that story, and as well as exploring the exemplars and the good kind of practices and things. So I think it was honestly, genuinely uh, very helpful. Thank you so much to Bartek Plotka. Bartek, will you come back sometime on GoTime? I would love to, yeah. I'd love to have you. Bjorn Rabenstein, also, will you come back? Yes, sure. It's one of my favorite podcasts. And if I'm in there myself, even better. Is it? It's boring for me then, but uh, it's a great honor. <laughs> yeah, if you remember everything you've said, that's boring. So if, if you can, try and forget it. Or just listen to it in a couple of years. But yeah, no, if you could just say that you'll be back, that'd be great. Yeah, I'll be back. Thank you. <laughs> oh, no, I should say it with the Terminator voice, yeah. I'll be back. <laughs> yeah, that, that's just your normal voice, isn't it, Bjorn? sometimes yeah and of course Johnny Bosco thanks Johnny it's always good hanging out Bjorn good luck with finding John Connor we'll see you next time on Go Time if you want more Matt Ryer more observability talk or simply more podcasts produced by us at Changelog I have good news for you we partnered with our friends at Grafana Labs to help them produce their very own pod. It's called Grafana's Big Tent and it stars Matt Tom Wilkie and Matt Toback Yes, there's two mats on the show. Very bad planning. Take a listen. Is it different than what came before distinctly? Is observability as a new term different than monitoring? I think so, because monitoring was almost always about time series, about metrics, about numbers. And observability is not necessarily about that. I think monitoring is part of it. But you still want to find out what's going on in your system. When you have a simple program, it's easy. As systems get bigger and they're used by more people and they're more complicated, it creates these new problems, doesn't it, where we suddenly are hidden a little bit sometimes from what's really happening. So observability has to be something around shedding some light on what's going on inside as well. Subscribe to Grafana's Big Tent at bigtent.fm or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks to our partners at Fastly for CDNing for us, to Breakmaster Cylinder for keeping our beat reserves topped up, and to you for listening. We appreciate you spending time with us. 
On the next episode, Natalie and Matt are joined by Matan Paled, a PhD candidate doing research on static checkers. He's put Go's checker through its paces and shares what he found. That's something to look forward to next time on Go Time. Go Time.